Well, I'd invite you to open your Bibles up to Exodus chapter 20, and verse 7 is where we'll be today. Exodus 20, verse 7, if you have uh, apps on your phones or if you have physical Bibles with you, please open up with me, and we are going to be continuing our series in the Ten Commandments. So, as we open up this morning, I just want to talk about names. What names do? Names actually, interestingly enough, have so many purposes. They can be used for so many things. So what can you do with a name? Uh, well, I had a friend in high school who was known for having the right last name. So, And when you have the right last name, interestingly enough, you can make a lot of things happen for your good. So as all of my teachers, because of this guy's last name, they automatically trusted him. Like he automatically, like it didn't matter. This, now I knew this guy really. Like I saw, I saw how this guy acted in all of his spheres of influence, but it didn't matter because he had the right last name. Like it didn't matter like what wrong that he did because he was able to convince people because of his last name that he was like, he was a good kid, that he had it all together, that he was a leader, right? So, so that was interestingly, I'm not going to get into all the details of how he, you know, messed things up, but he did mess things up. Let's be, let's be honest about that. So, so uh, last name, it, it, it matters. Uh, how about this? Did you know that other people can use your name? Like, other people can take your name and do something with it. So, uh, Gary, I think, told me about this. Gary Miller told me that, about this. My father-in-law told me about this. Uh, both Gary and my father-in-law, somebody used their name to file for unemployment during the pandemic, right? And you've heard about this, this scam, perhaps, that has been happening during the, the pandemic. People are using unemployment or using last names or using people's names to be able to try to get something from the government, Right? Uh, how about this? Have you, uh, if you have ever led or managed anything, and you had people who reported to you for anything, those people will use your name to get the things that they want. So, uh, like, they, they will say, uh, imagine Bob is the guy that we all report to in here, and I come up to you, and I say, hey, uh, you know, Bob told me that this is what he wanted. Now, Bob may have never had a conversation. I may not have talked to Bob for five months, but because I use Bob's name, I am able to get what I want, right? So I can use Bob's name. Salespeople, oh my goodness. So I, this summer, uh, I was in my home, and this guy comes up and knocks on my door, and he says, hey, I know the, I don't even remember the family's name, but I know the such and such family down the street here, and I've talked to them, and they're utilizing me, and um, w- because I know them, you know, you, I, I have a product that you should take advantage of, because I do this for the, the whole neighborhood, and, and this family down here really appreciates me, so you should listen. I don't have any idea who these people are, but I'm sure that they would care that you're using their name to manipulate me into buying something from you, right? So, uh, I, I also, <laughs> funny uh, enough, if you have relationships with people whose job it is to sell something, they will ask you for people's names that they, like, references for them to go pursue, right? And you always feel so awkward about it because you're like, it's not, like, that name is not my name. I can't just give it to anybody, but you want me to give out these people's names, right? Okay, so uh, imagine I go to Hanover Park Village Hall and I want to pick a bone with somebody. 
And uh, you all know Jim Kemper, right? Jim Kemper sits at, on the board of Hanover Park as a village trustee. Imagine I go to Hanover Park Village Hall and I say, hey, I know Jim Kemper. I guarantee you Jim is going to care very much about what I say from that moment forward when I go in to the village hall. Uh, imagine I'm counseling people and it's your name that I'm using. In fact, I tell you that, hey, I am counseling people all the time and I bring up your name all the time. You're probably going like, huh what do you use my name for? Am I like a negative example that you like use to, to show other people? And that's a way, like how are you using my name, right? And the point is, the point is that, uh, you know, names are very useful. They have a lot of uses. And interestingly enough, we care how people use our names. We actually care what people do with our names. So if that's true for us, how much more is it true for the God of the universe? So today we're going to look at a phrase that you have probably heard before, and in that phrase, God reveals how we should treat his name, that he actually cares about his name, that his name is important. He reveals that when we speak of God, those words that we speak, they have value because we are speaking of God. That when we speak to God, those words are important because it is God that we are speaking to. That moment has value. So I have a question that's going to move us forward this morning, and that question is this. What is God's name for, and why does it matter? What is God's name for, and why does it matter? So we're going through this series on the Ten Commandments. And the first three commandments are actually very interesting because they are suddenly reframing every aspect of Israelite theology, right? Israel is out in the wilderness, they're at Mount Sinai, they're here to meet with God, and God is kind of undoing their whole conception of the world. Like everything that they thought they knew about how divine power works, God has to break it down and reframe things for them because their minds are so malformed by the polytheism that existed in Egypt that there's no way, like as they listen to what God is saying, they're thinking there's no way that this makes sense. Like the the dots don't connect in their mind because they have been so shaped by their culture. This is like, you know, somebody buying a house for you. They give you a house and this is what they say to you. You need to sleep in the front yard. And then when you eat, you need to climb up, get a ladder and climb up on the roof so that you can eat up on a roof. And, And then when you cook, you need to do all of your cooking in the washing machine. And when you dry clothes, this is how you dry your clothes. You put them in the microwave and you set the timer to dry your clothes. Like that, all of that is utterly ridiculous, right? We would never do any of that. But you need to understand the Israelites, as they're hearing God say these things, that's the kind of sense that that these words make to them. It just does not connect for them. He's saying everything that you previously uh, understood and knew about divinity is wrong. It's useless. It's offensive, and now I'm setting up laws so that it becomes illegal, right? So the Ten Commandments are actually really unique in the way that they set up these laws because most laws for us, they give us a surface evaluation of our actions. So, uh, you know, like this, there here are a list of actions that you should perform and the right ways to perform them, and then here are a list of things that you should not do, like things that you should make sure to take care to avoid, right? 
But upon deeper evaluation, the Ten Commandments are unique as a set of laws because they go beyond mere action into dealing with matters of the heart. They actually, they, they think about your intent, not just your actions. They, they are concerned with how you are directing your inner life. So uh, the first two commandments, we've, we've covered these, but let's just consider how these have something to do with the heart and not just with pure action. So, so you're an Israelite, you're chosen God, told you, you know, in Egypt you get to choose your gods, and, and that, those chosen gods give you the deeds that they call good, right? The actions that you need to perform. And so you pick out your gods based on the actions that you want to perform. And so God comes along and he gives this command and says, hey, no other gods. No other gods. This is, what, this is essentially what he's saying. He's saying, hey, my position is unique. That's who I am, right? No, nobody else belongs in this position. And when it cuts to the heart, this is essentially what he's saying. The deeper evaluation says, no one else makes the rules. Nobody else. That's what the first commandment is all about. I get to make the rules. Nobody else determines the rules. So then, you know, with the second commandment, Israel, you know, they think, the only way that I can get a God's power to work for me is if I can, you know, shape that God and I can feed that God, and I can move it around, right? I make an idol, a graven image, right? I take it around, I put it on my mantle, I put it wherever I want to put it, and then I'm gonna use that uh, idol in order to get things that I want from God. And so God comes along to the Israelites and says, hey, my image is unique, and I'm the only one who gets to decide where it goes and what it looks like. And upon deeper value, so, uh, so this is not just uh, a thing about action, but upon deeper evaluation, what we see that God is saying is that no one else shapes or controls me. Nobody shapes or controls me. Nobody exerts that kind of power over my power. So what I hope we've, as a church, have, that we've been discovering as we go through that is that, that we actually have ways of speaking to and relating to God that not only violate his principles, but actually reveal something about our hearts that we have inclinations inside of us to have somebody besides God tell us what is right. That we have inclinations inside of us that we would seek to control God and control his power. Another way to say this is that our hearts are naturally bent against God and his principles. You cannot get into the Ten Commandments long without discovering this. So today, God, God is gonna say something completely mind-blowing to his people. He's going to tell them that my name is unique. And the reality that the, these commands, they're all dressing, addressing matters of the heart becomes even more clear when God speaks about his name. So then what is the command? In Exodus 20, verse 7, this is what it says. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Most people, as they think of this commandment, this is like the don't curse commandment, right? Like, uh, you know, I shouldn't have any other gods, and I shouldn't lie, and I shouldn't curse. That's what, like, some people consider that, and I, it's, it's not quite what is going on here. So, uh, so two words to take note of. Number one is take, the word take, and the second one is in vain. Take comes from the Hebrew word nasa, 
which means to lift up. So you think NASA, it lifts it up, right? The, the rocket goes up in the air. So uh, take, to carry, lift up or carry, that's kind of the, the way that we think of take. And in vain is the Hebrew word shaway, which uh, is essentially meaninglessly. Uh, think of something that was full. Uh, think of like a, a pitcher of water that was full. And you have now evacuated that pitcher of all the water that was inside of it, all of its contents. Like that's the concept that this Hebrew word is going for. That you have taken everything that a word could contain and removed it from that word, right? Meaninglessly. So, so literally what he's saying is do not carry my name in a meaningless way. Now, if you flip that around and make it positive, what he's saying is carry my name in a way that honors its meaning. Carry my name in a way that honors its meaning. So just to note, Jewish people, uh, when they think of this command, they will apply this saying of God, and, and they will essentially say, because God has said this, there is no truly meaningful way for us to speak his name. So it's just best never to say it. That's kind of the the application that a lot of Jewish people take for this. And and I see where they're coming from because, you know, we are weak, small people. We can't possibly conceptualize everything that is God. Uh, I get what they're saying, but we have to take special note of one reality, that God's heart is for his people to be able to relate to him. God's desire is for us to, to be able to draw near to him. Like It is one of his greatest joys that human beings could be able to relate to him. But along with that, when we do relate to him, we must recognize that the identity of the one that we're relating to actually carries great weight. So let's ask a question then. If if we need to carry God's name in a way that honors its meaning, we need to ask the question, what does God's name mean, right? So, uh, so just a bit of review back like, oh gosh, this was probably almost a year ago now when we first started going through Exodus. Uh, we talked about Moses' encounter with the Lord, and, and the Lord gives his name to Moses, right? And so uh, the Lord's name in, in Hebrew, it is Yahweh, or some people say Jehovah. Uh, the whole point is, uh, in Hebrew, it looks like this. They don't really put any vowels after it, but what it means is I am. Now, we talked about what does it mean that God calls himself I am, and we worked our way through that. And if I want to understand, you know, I I can conceptualize God as saying, you know, I am existence. I am the only one who created things. I am the foundation of everything, right? Like, that is contained in his name. But actually, if I really want to understand what God's name means, it's going to be helpful for me to take special note of how he uses his name. Like, what kind of things does he associate his name with? I want to be sure to associate his name with the same things. So, so far, uh, before verse 7, in the Ten Commandments, God has actually used his name twice. He's used his name two different times, and, and these Ten Commandments, these are like the founding documents of Israel's nation. Like, this is the foundation. So when God puts his name in particular places, we should really especially take note of that. The first place he uses his name is in Exodus 20, verse 2. And he says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So here, 
the first place he uses his name in the Ten Commandments, God intentionally links his name with the act of saving people. Like this is one, this phrase right here, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, this is one of the most often repeated phrases in the entire Old Testament. Like God's saving act is how he shows up for his people. God's saving character, it's foundational to how he himself relates to us. When God is talking to people, he talks to those people about the action that he uses to relate to that. He, he connects his name about the action that he comes down into their life with. So in this case, Israel was stuck in hopelessness, in oppression, in slavery. Pharaoh was evil, and he was taking advantage of them, and he was trying to kill them and make sure that they wouldn't advance. He was trying to control these people. And so how does God, they cry out to God, and how does God show up when they cry out to him? He saves them. And then he signs his name to the act. So, uh, you've heard the phrase, hey, I need your John Hancock, right? How many of you know anything that John Hancock did? Right. Yes, he did, right? So why do we say, I need your John Hancock? Because we know one thing that he did. He signed the Declaration of Independence, right? So, forever throughout the annals of history. John Hancock, there was so much more about John Hancock that we probably don't know, that we could research, but what we know John Hancock for is this action. His name was attacked because the action was so massive, so significant for our country that his name was constantly attached to that action. So um, in the same way, Yahweh's name is attached to an action. Yahweh's name is synonymous with salvation. He, and I'm, I'm not saying like we should know God because God saved us. Like this is, like this is how we really know. I, I'm saying how God has identified himself to us. The thing that he chooses to associate himself with when he shows himself to us is his salvation. And so when we hear Yahweh's name, our instant thought should be, this is the God who saved you. So the second time, the second time he uses his name in the Ten Commandments is in verses 5 and 6. We actually covered this last week, talking about idolatry. So, so God's talking about his response to idolatry, and in verse 5 he says, I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the, to the generations, right? And then it goes on in, in verse 6, and it says, but showing steadfast love. So, uh, so we see, like, he connects his name to his passion against idolatry. And his words here to Israel are not unlike a groom talking to his bride. Like, he is, in this moment, he is literally making a covenant with Israel. And covenant is simply, the, like, we use the word covenant to refer to marriage. That's how many refer to it. A covenant is an agreement that binds two parties together in a very intimate way. And so interestingly enough, his, his language around idolatry, it equates to the breaking of a marriage covenant. Like, he's essentially saying, if you make idols and put them in your house or on your mantle, if you have them, if you bow down to them, if you make any images of creation above or of the earth below, if you do any of this, this is equated with spiritual adultery which is why he talks about carrying out 
judgment on them, right? But on the flip side, he uses this word steadfast love. And maybe you have a different translation of the Bible. Your Bible might say something like loving kindness or mercy or unfailing love. All of those words are trying to get at one of the most important words in the entire Old Testament, and that word is hesed. Hesed is essentially a constant, pursuing, loyal, faithful love. That's what it's talking about. So, so God, he says, I am Yahweh, and if you break my covenant, I, I will execute judgment, but I show steadfast love. I'm showing you loyalty. So he not only connects his name to salvation, but, but uh, salvation specifically that displays his relating character. So Yahweh's name, it carries with it relational weight. It talks about salvation, and it carries with it relational weight. So my wife's name is Andrea. I can no longer speak the name Andrea, no matter what Andrea I meet. I can no longer speak the name Andrea without the name bearing the weight of our relationship, of our history on my soul and on my psyche. Now, does that mean that I relive every moment that we've ever had when I speak her name? No, it doesn't mean that. That's not possible. But what it does mean is that I'm actually, I'm careful about how I use, my, use her name. Like, I care about how the words that I speak reflect on her. I care about what other people think about her when they see me, right? Because she's associated with me. Our names are connected, right? I care that my heart for her is reflected to others in how I speak about her. So, so when it comes to Yahweh, how much more than? Like the God who puts his reputation on the line for sinful people. The God who puts other gods to shame to rescue his people. The, gods who sh- the God who shows unwavering commitment to us more clearly than any other being in all of the universe. So go back to what I said about um, uh, earlier on about the Ten Commandments being unique. Um, you know, for what it's worth, other ancient Near Eastern law codes, they existed at the same time as the Ten Commandments did. They came about at, at, at the same time as the Ten Commandments. And these uh, law codes, they came from rulers or they, they were seen to come from uh, other idols or other gods, right? But I just want to tell you, no other ancient Near Eastern ruler, no other ancient Near Eastern god, no idol would ever relate to their subjects the way that Yahweh is relating to Israel right now. Right? They, what they do, they list their own accomplishments. They list the amazing things that they've done. They talk about their power and their wealth and how they've done all of these amazing things for all the different gods that exist. They make a big deal about themselves, but they don't really talk about the love that they have for the people that they're overseeing. But Yahweh is different. His name is about so much more than power or position. Every every Israelite, when they interacted with the name, they actually should have thought something like this. Yahweh is your good, gracious, saving, loving, 
faithful father. When God gives his name, he is extending to them gracious and good and joyful and loving and saving relationship. So if that's what the name means, then we have a second question to answer, which is how might I carry the name meaninglessly? Exodus 20, verse 7 says, You shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain. So no surprise here, Egyptian polytheists would use the names of their gods all the time to get various things. Like, do you want to curse someone's crops who offended you? Well, what you do is you recite a curse in the name of a fertility god. And if you want that curse to be especially effective, what you will do is you will repeat that god's name as many times as you possibly can to accomplish the thing that you want to happen. If you want to make uh, maybe a promise that you're making to another person have greater impact, you want to make them believe your promise, you, then you, what you do is you attach the name of a really powerful idol to the promise that you're making. And you say, you know, by Baal, I swear that I will do this or that, right? And, and you don't really have to plan on following through with the promise that you make, but you do it in order to manipulate somebody, right? To get them to believe that the promise you're making is true. Do you want to lay claim to maybe some financial prosperity in your life? Well, then what you would do is you would maybe recite an incantation in the name of your God, and you would repeat that God's name over and over and over again to get that God to accomplish the thing that you want it to do. So for an ancient person, to have the name of a God was actually to have control over that God's actions in the world. Maybe you see a theme here, a theme where human beings get to use God's power in however they choose. That God became like a genie became a tool for manipulating other people. God's names actually became commonplace then in society, so much so that people in society would use these God's names, and, and they, would, they would mean nothing. It would carry no meaning because it got used so much. And Yahweh is telling him, this action, it is useless and offensive. It is such a wasteful thing. Don't do that with my name. So for what it's worth, we have our own ways of doing this today. Um, so many of you know, uh, and if you don't, you'll hear here. Uh, so when we're going through Exodus, going through the Ten Commandments, there are actually two other churches in our area that are going through the Ten Commandments at the same time as us. So every Monday, I get together with two other pastors, and we get to, to prep our sermons together. We get to share ideas. Uh, we get to collaborate a lot. It's really, really useful to me. And so uh, Pastor Michael from Village Church of Bartlett is one of those guys, and he, he came up with this uh, list of five ways that we can use God's name in vain, that we can use it meaninglessly. And so I just want to, I want to run through that list with you. The first one, first of the five ways is that we could misuse God's name to get my way. I can misuse God's name. So, so like, this is like, you know, whatever you ask in Jesus' name, he will give it to you, except we forget that according to my will part, right? So, but it, we, like, we just pray, okay, God, like, I really want this thing. I really want to see this thing happen. So I'm going to attach Jesus' name to the back of it to really make sure that it happens, right? 
So, so we don't want to use, misuse God's name to get my way. We want to examine our hearts in the process of when we address God and make sure that we're not just using him for our own ends. Uh, the second way that we can do this is we can flippantly speak of God. So this actually can happen several different ways. We might maybe toss God's name around as a reaction to some unfortunate circumstances in our spheres of influence, right? You hear people do this all the time, right? This is, they just use God's name as a reaction. We might um, approach God with some kind of complaining or whining in our voice, like, God, this is so awful. How could you make this happen? And something similarly like that, we could actually accuse God of not matching up to our standards. Say things like, God, how could you? God, you must not love me. God, you must not care about things happening in the world. How could God let this happen, right? All of these are ways of flippantly speaking about God. Uh, The third way is that we can misrepresent God's words in order to manipulate others. (laughs) People do this. Maybe somebody's done this to you. They come up to you. And they start their sentence with, God told me. John Palpin, he got everything he said. God showed me. Right? God, God has a word for me to you. And they, they don't give any like, you know, I'm wondering, I'm asking you to pray about it. But they approach you with a certain level of certainty about exactly what it is that God's doing. And um, so... so like, I've heard stories about teenage boys apo- approaching, you know, girls that they like and say, you know, God told me that uh, I'm supposed to be married to you, right? How manipulative is that? Like, how, that you're not, like, I'm not saying that God, you know, never reveals things to people, but when people leave no room for their prophecies to be tested, right, to, by the word of God and by actual events, they're simply, what they're doing is they're just making power moves to manipulate people. They're attaching God's name to lift themselves up. So um, the fourth way that we can misuse God's name, breaking oaths made in God's name. So Leviticus 19.12 says, do not bring shame on the name of your God by using it to swear falsely, I am the Lord. So as we look throughout the Old Testament, we will see other commands, and they're, they're commands taking the principles of the Ten Commandments and applying them. And apparently one thing that people would do is that they would use Yahweh's name to attach it to what they would swear, but then they wouldn't follow through with their actions. So don't swear falsely. Uh, some people, you know, say, sw- you know, I swear to God. Swear to God I'm going to do it, right? Well, some people say this, and, and they might mean it, right? And they might intend to follow through. But some people say it, and they have no intention of following through, right? They just, they just use it as a way of just trying to convince you that what they're saying is right. The fifth way that we might do this is affiliating God's name with false religions, so Exodus 23, 13 says this. It says, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods. It says after that, nor let it be heard on your lips. So I talked about this a couple of weeks ago and I just can't not talk about it again. So uh, you remember Representative Cleaver, uh, the 117th Congress, he goes up, he prays this prayer and he prays it not just in the name of Jesus, but he prays it in the name of Brahman and of the God known by many other faiths and many other traditions, right? This is what he says. He literally 
carries the title of Christ on his person, meaning that he is calling himself a Christian minister, right? Christ is in his title, right? So he is carrying the name of God, and when he carries the name of God to perform a Christian act, he breaks not only the first commandment by insisting that there might be other gods, but he breaks the third commandment by associating the names of other gods with his prayer that is supposed to be in the name of Jesus. So, as a, a work of kind of clarifying the significance of this, this is what God says in Exodus 20, verse 7. It says, The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. To misuse God's name after having been identified as one that he loves, as one that he has pursued, as one that he has saved. To misuse God's name after this point, God says it requires payment. This is what he's saying. He's, he's essentially saying it would be wrong for me to simply let this go. I cannot overlook what you're doing here. Like there's something about God and the ways that he has acted in the world that is so profound, so gracious, so self-giving, so loving, that then to turn around and speak of God in a way that fails to acknowledge that, God cannot simply overlook it. So with that being said, we could continue going down the negative path, but actually what I want to do is I want to look on the positive side of this. So I have a question for you, Christian. Who is your God and what has he done for you? Debbie opened our service this morning by telling us promises that God has given to us and I want to do something similar to that right now. Who is your God and what has he done for you? He is the God who saves, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. He is the God who gives, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He is the God who wants relationship with us. 1 Peter three eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He is the God who forgives us. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's the God who sacrifices for his own enemies. Romans 5 eight. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's the God who loves us. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So certainly you want to be careful in the way that you use the name, but, but when these truths about who God is and what God has done for us sink down deep into your heart, how can you not help but speak of him in the most honoring ways? Like, how can you not speak of him in ways that are overflowing with thanksgiving all the time? How can you not have the greatest reverence for who he is because of what he's accomplished for you? So church, here's what the third commandment would encourage us to do this morning. Carry God's name like you love him. Carry God's name like you love him. So when you engage in conversations with others, remember that as you engage in those conversations and as God's name comes up, remember that you were bought with a price. 
when your circumstances might make you question God's goodness, remember what he put on the line for you to save you. When you pray, humbly thank God that he has made you his child. When you carry the name Christian or the name Jesus follower into your spheres of influence, right? So this is not just, this is not just simply speaking the name, right? This is literally he has put his name upon us so that when we go, wherever we go, we are literally carrying the name with us into the various spaces that we go. So when you carry the name Christian or the name Jesus follower into your spheres, do it with deeds that reveal that you would be hopeless without him. Carry God's name like you love him. Okay, so what? So what? So there are, as we have gone through this this morning, there are probably a number of questions that you still might have about this. And I, I don't want to leave this morning without really identifying those and uh, trying to address them. So the first question, is this commandment referencing the name Yahweh specifically or something more? Is this commandment uh, specifically refer- referencing Yahweh's name or is it something more? So Remember, the Ten Commandments, and we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks, the, the Ten Commandments, they provide to us overarching principles, right? Ideas about things that God cares about. So, so for us, what that means is that, yes, Yahweh specifically, we have to be very careful about how we use that name, the context that we use it in, but really any words that you ref- use to refer to the God of the universe, including God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, our Father, all of those words, they carry with them the relational weight of the God who has uh, joined himself to us, who has reached out to us. Uh, They carry the significance of what he has accomplished. So the New Testament, Jesus actually, he takes the principle that is given to us in the in the Ten Commandments, and he applies it in the Sermon on the Mount. He actually expands the meaning of it in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, 7, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases repeating your God's name over and over and over again as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father, how does he address God here? Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Right, the idea that, that he's saying here is he's, he's broadening the meaning of this to go simply beyond the name of God, that we would have reverence in any aspect of how we refer to God, and that we would not associate the names of any other uh, religions, that we would be very careful to not repeat things over and over and over again, that we would be intentional, no matter how we refer to God, that we'd be very careful about the way that we pray to God, the way that we speak to him. Uh, The second question that you probably have. How should I respond when non-believing friends wastefully refer to God? Um, So the first thing that I would tell you is that they don't know what they're doing. Right? It's just like, they, they have not met the God that we've met. The scales have not fallen off their eyes. They don't see him for who he is. And so... The, the disrespect is still there, don't get me wrong. But the thing that they're going to be judged for is not believing God. Right? So when we 
see them and we hear them, we should not respond in judgment, right? We should not, we should not rebuke them in judgment. We should be patient with them, right? Is they like, okay, yeah, like I understand, yeah. And then maybe if they use God's name in a certain way, maybe if you're bold enough, you might ask them, why? You know, why, why do you use his name as a curse? Especially, like, if they're using the name of Jesus, right? Because we don't use Buddha or, uh, you know, anything like that. So, so why Jesus' name at the end? Like, and maybe that, that could create an opportunity to open up a conversation and talk to them. Like, and you say, you, you can talk how you want. Um, the reason I asked is, because, like, I have a God who's done so much for me, and his name is Jesus. So maybe you can use that to create a conversation. Uh, but, yeah, don't make them feel awkward, or, like, don't, you know, come out and rebuke them, right? Just help them see Jesus. Um, number three. Are you saying, I should change my vocabulary? I'm saying that I need to change my vocabulary. Out of all the Ten Commandments, I'm preaching through them as I'm thinking about them, as I'm considering how they meet me, Alex. I mean, we've not done all of them yet, so just buckle with me. But I have a hard time thinking that there would be one that is most going to change my behavior. Is most actually going to point out something in me that is not in alignment with what God wants. Not because I'm using God's name as a curse all the time, or at all, right? But because sometimes I treat prayer as a religious function rather than a recognition of the relationship that I have with God. Sometimes I speak a lot of God, but don't actually love my neighbor all that well. Like sometimes I can be more interested in the way that I put words together than I am interested in the one who is the subject of my words. So when you ask, are you saying I should change my vocabulary? I'm actually saying, like, I think maybe we all might need to change our vocabulary a little bit. So I'm going to close this morning. Um, Jesus' name, pronounced uh, in the Hebrew, is Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Like the way God identified his Messiah, the one that would come into the world is with his saving action. Yahweh saves. So Acts 4.12 says this. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I want to read for you uh, an excerpt from a hymn about Jesus' name. This is what it says. It says, I know of a name, a beautiful name, that angels brought down to earth. They whispered it low one night long ago to a maiden of lowly birth. That beautiful name, that beautiful name, 
from sin has power to free us. That beautiful name, that wonderful name, that matchless name is Jesus. Church, I'm going to pray, and then Debbie's actually going to lead us in a song together, and, uh, and then we will close our service. But I just encourage you. The God that we refer to, the God that we speak of, the God that we relate to, his name carries weight. Might we always recognize the weight that it carries, the significance of what he's done for our sakes? Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, this morning as we consider who you are and and the kind of people that you desire us to be, God, we can't even talk about that without talking first about how you came to us. That you approached us as a God who extended to us salvation. Extended to us relationship with you. And the way that you did it explicitly for us today is you sent your son to hang on a tree. So that you could extend forgiveness. So that the wall that was between us and you because of our sin could be broken down. And that we could actually be with you. That we could have relationship with you. That we could know you. That you could shape us and inform us. That the Holy Spirit could take up residence inside of us. We are who we are today. And we know you because you saved us. So God, when we speak of who you are, when we pray to you, when we associate ourselves with you, when we go out into our spheres of influence, may we always carry your name in recognition of the fact that you are the God who bought relationship with us. That you are the God who loves us. And that we love you back. Holy Spirit, help us with these things, we pray. In Jesus' name.